You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, Research Assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation. I am filling in as the guest host for this episode. In June 1969, the New York City police conducted a raid on the gay bar Stonewall Inn, continuing its years of harassment of LGBTQ communities in the city. But this time turned out different. The community fought back with three days of neighborhood riots, sparking the modern LGBTQ rights movement. So every June, in homage to the Stonewall riots, LGBTQ communities gather to celebrate Pride Month. For those who don't know, the acronym LGBTQ, a term that is also sometimes extended to LGBTQIA+, stands for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, and other communities that do not adhere to society's cisgender and heteronormative standards. This year's Pride Month comes at a difficult time for LGBTQ rights. Over the past year, there have been over 300 anti-LGBTQ bills proposed in at least 28 states, including Florida's Don't Say Gay bill that aims to limit LGBTQ discussions in schools and a bill in Ohio that would ban transgender women from participating in high school and college athletics that includes a verification process of checking the genitals of those accused of being transgender. In these turbulent times, it is all the more important for us at Tech Tank to surface the intersection of tech issues and the protection of LGBTQ rights. And joining us today are esteemed experts who have dedicated their careers to working on these issues. They are Chris Wood, the executive director and co-founder of LGBT Tech, which focuses on advocacy for LGBT individuals and communities as it relates to technology and the policies that govern it. We also have David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of Black LGBTQ people. NBJC's mission is to end racism, homophobia, and LGBTQ bias and stigma. Thank you both so much for coming onto our podcast today. Thanks for having me slash us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much again. So the incoming barrage of anti-LGBTQ sentiment all the more surfaces the need for user privacy. As we know, tech companies conduct unmitigated data collection on every aspect of our lives, be it our location data, our browsing history, and more. David, U.S. history has been marred by various privacy infringements of the LGBTQ community. Can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, I'll talk about three of them that immediately come to mind. The first is the pink scare, which was the federal government's use of data to try and out people operating in public positions who they believed to be um, homosexuals, to use a term that was in vogue at the time. And it was an early form of targeting and terrorizing uh, people, again, were suspected of and might have otherwise been living publicly or have invited people in into their identity 
as a member of a sexual minority community. And we've seen a resurgence of that type of legislative attempts to, again, target and terrorize folks over the last two years. The second, I think a lot about your introduction and acknowledgement of stonewalls that there have been, and in some spaces throughout the country, continue to be municipal laws that target queer people in unique ways. And so one of the reasons why Stonewall is important and exists because there was um, municipal law that said that it was okay to discriminate in the selling of liquor to people who were believed to be queer, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender nonconforming, or whatever the terms might have been at the time. Uh, And it was one of the reasons why members of the community gathered at the Stonewall Inn because it was one of the places where they could um, gather in what sometimes was a safe space. That safe space um, exists with an asterisk because police would raid it, uh, knowing that this was the these were the conditions that were created and it was the resistance of a few folks, including Marsha P. Johnson, that led to what became the Stonewall resistance. And then the third I think of as an acknowledgement of the lack of protections for members of our community. Sadly, one of the reasons why the Equality Act is such an important piece of legislation is because there are not clear and consistent anti-discrimination protections for people who are members of or who are more often perceived to be members of the LGBTQIA plus community. I, as a footnote, don't use the term gay, primarily because it's a a political term used to reference uh, white gay men. I use the term same gender loving, and I acknowledge that there are some people who already feel like there are too many letters under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella, and until we don't need any of them, I'm going to insist on adding another one. But the point here is that I have experienced discrimination in ride shares resulting from what I believe to be people's reading of my sexual identity. Some of that for folks who can't see me in this moment is because I'm a six foot five African-American man who has my nails painted. One had bright blue, the other is a very bright yellow. I talk with my hands and sometimes show up in ways that are not consistent with traditional, I'm doing that in air quotes, read the heterosexual agenda, expectations of masculinity. And because ride shares didn't exist when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was codified, there are no protections in that space. The same gap in protections exist in other, what the legal term is called public accommodations, whether that be bake shops, if anyone is thinking in this moment about the masterpiece cake shop cake or movie theaters or places where most people take for granted the ability to show up and move through them and be serviced and supported freely. And this is one of the reasons why MBJC as an organization partnered with an organization called Out in Tech to create the Lavender Book, which is an app that builds upon the learnings applied in the development of the Green Book, which was a parallel attempt to respond to overt anti-Black racism in the South, acknowledging that there are and have always been Black people who have multiple intersectional marginalized identities. This is one of the ways in which our organization has leveraged technology to fill a gap. That is super interesting and important work. And I just want to say blue and yellow is an excellent color combination. And I'm kind of sad we're not in the same room right now because I would really like to see what your nails look like. Thanks, I'll send um, you a picture. <laughs> yes, please. And Chris, I know that LGBT tech has also been doing important work on modern day privacy infringements, tying back to writer surveillance and online dating. Would you mind telling us more about that? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm so glad to be surrounded by such awesome people today. David, I wish I could see your nails as well. But I'm really 
I, I wanted to kind of start with the just the overall privacy and thinking about it. I think a lot of what what we've been finding in our research that we've been conducting and really looking at the ways that LGBTQ individuals and different parts of our community, as David alluded to, have been impacted by privacy or the lack of privacy in their particular spaces. And I think it's important to remember that privacy or the root of privacy, as it's stated, started long before any technical advances that we see today. And actually, the the right to be left alone, which is the right to be let alone, which is a case that, that was heard back in 1890, actually uh, was because of someone from the LGBTQ community who was being spied on in the fact that they are, in the fact that they were uh, queer or effeminate. Back then, the words for gay were not really used publicly in the same way as, you know, as we've heard from some of our historians and some of the news, news series that are out just this month. But I think it's really important to kind of talk about that in relation to <clears throat> technology as it exists today. The, the history of the LGBTQ community has long had fears of being tracked, being followed, being, you know, talked about the lavender scare, talked about the way the federal government has used information and technology or technology and information or a combination thereof to track movements of the LGBTQ community and use their own lives and and personal data against them. And so I think, you know, some of the things that you're talking about are more modern, but even back in during before Stonewall and getting into Stonewall, there was the issue of police using information that they had gathered or data that was then being used against our community. And it creates a real, uh, a real fear in our community as to how their information is being used. The two pieces that you brought up, first are are writer surveillance and the second is dating apps. I want to touch on those just for a moment because it's important to recognize that the tech that has been developed uh, around some of these pieces is is used to track the movements of individual vehicles as they move throughout a a city. It's currently being used in things like dockless bikes and scooters. Some municipalities may even be using those in Ubers and Lyfts now. That is collecting a lot of information, as David had alluded to, the starting points, the routes, the destination, and this is all without an opt-out mechanism. So we have a large amount of data that could be potentially stored by a city or another entity on individuals to where it's very easy to figure out who they are, where they might be going, and inadvertently out them. Very different of being outed today maybe than earlier, but as as uh, the other speakers here have have alluded to in the fact that LGBT, just because you identify as LGBTQ, you might belong to another part of the marginalized community. LGBTQ communities are, are not a monolith. They, they span all other communities. And I think it's important to recognize that LGBTQ communities are some of the only communities that can be discriminated against in their own biological homes, often creating rifts and an unsupportive system, depending on where you're growing up or what the beliefs are within the family. And that leads me to the second piece, because we're talking about data. We're talking about data apps. I think it's really important to, to point to a case that actually just that happened last August. It was the outing of a Catholic priest using data that was collected. And so it was a top official, for those that don't know, it was a top official in the Catholic Church that resigned after a Catholic news editor obtained mobile location data from his cell phone without his knowledge to track his activity on a gay dating app grinder. And what they did, they're, they're, it didn't have his name or his phone number or anything associated with that. What they did was they were able to use that location data to figure out who was in a particular location, maybe a Catholic church office or something like that at a particular time, and then use that same location or that's 
location identifier to then see that he was visiting other LGBTQ establishments around the country or in his own community. And it was that data that was completely obtained uh, legally that was used against him. I think it's also important to remember that even though we're using all this technology and, and there's a lot of great benefits to it, there's also some bad actors in this particular space. There's there's companies that are selling LGBTQ data, and I'm not just talking about sexual orientation and gender identity data. I'm talking about data that is even if someone has disclosed their HIV status on one of these dating apps or other health information or you know any type of more personal or sensitive information that would be used in a dating experience to make sure that you're being authentic and open about a potential partner, that information is being sold and used in a way that could be very damaging to an individual. And so I think, you know, as we're thinking about the data being used and how it's being used, just going back to your original question, I just think that there's huge, there's huge privacy implications for our community. And as soon as you get into any other, I I recognize where I'm at. I'm a cis white gay male. That comes with a level of privilege for other members of our community, our trans community, African-American community, um, Hispanic community, identifying as LGBT is just another complicated layer that can really have some adverse effects on their health, their safety, where they're at and where they they build their community. And so uh, it has a huge potential to be damaging if we don't figure it out and we don't get it right. Yes, definitely. Those are incredibly important points. And when we're talking about buying and selling data, it's inevitable to kind of introduce social media companies into all of this. So let's talk a little bit about social media privacy controls. What risks do existing LGBTQ folks face with existing social media privacy practices? And what more do you think social medias can do to better protect the privacy of their LGBTQ users? I have two major points here around this particular piece. We have to keep in mind that social media platforms and the ability to communicate across the internet has been really empowering for the LGBTQ community because it has allowed, it has been a place of community, whether you live in the middle of Las Cruces, New Mexico to, you know, or to New York City, you can go online and find a community, even if the community may not be directly around you. And so that is an important benefit of social media and some of these other social platforms. I think there's two major points that we need to be thinking about here is one, social media companies and companies that are doing any type of social interaction like that, we really need to have transparency, transparency on how they're collecting data, what they're using it for, the length that they're holding on to it, who or why or how or what might people have access to it. That transparency is truly important, not just for the people using it, but it also gives the people using it and the people that have created these platforms the ability to really help and 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 provide feedback to the community in a really beneficial way, provide research in a really beneficial way. But it also allows that indiv- those individuals to make decisions for themselves. When a company is completely transparent about what they're doing with their data, that empowers an individual, regardless of what community they identify with, to be able to make a decision that's best for them. And that goes to my second point, which is giving users control, full control over their privacy on those platforms, the control to release information, the control to not put information on there, the control to delete their information and it be fully and transparently truly deleted. So I think there's two those two major points that I would say when it comes to social media, there's huge benefits to it. There's also huge challenges with it. And I think that the transparency and the controls, giving the, the users controls and education are some of the key points that we can do. 
Yeah, if this were at the risk of being pissed negative, if this were Instagram, I would double tap everything that Chris said and add um, two things, which is what tech companies uh, or large platforms can and should be doing. I stumbled through that in part because I think it's impossible for any company to operate in this environment without using tech in meaningful ways. And so sometimes there's precision warranted when talking about the um, largest platforms that moderate content and or facilitate um, networking and digital spaces. But all of this to say, every platform can be doing more to increase digital literacy. It is still the reality that in spite of our ability to have this conversation, there are too many people who rely upon and engage with digital platforms every single day who don't understand that data is being collected and not collected and used to improve the platform, but to be sold for profit. And so finding ways to speak to people in language that they understand about this transaction or these transactions is critically important. The sub point to that is often tech platforms will hide much of this information in very small fonted language at an initial step when somebody's downloading a platform or is otherwise interested in using it. Switching that so that folks have the ability to opt in um, to sharing their data in ways that, again, are used for profit is a sub-step that tech companies, big platforms should take. And then very much related to that, because this is big business, right? Big, big data is big business. And these companies, their profits are in large part because of the data they collect, use, and otherwise share. Um, sharing those profits with the data, the, the people for whom the data is collected and who own the data is also important. There are examples of how to do this in other countries. And my hope is that not only will some of the leaders here have more conversations about this, but move in the direction of sharing with the people who own the data and who otherwise are being profited upon. Definitely, definitely. Those are important points. And kind of complicating the situation a little. So as we all know, kids these days are getting online at a younger and younger age. And in response, tech companies have also been rolling out various parental control measures to protect children from abuse, harassment, or sexual solicitation from adults. So I'm opening up the floor to both of you on this one. What are the implications of parental controls on LGBTQ kids who can't be out to their parents? Because I think it was Chris who made the point that sometimes people aren't safe even in their own homes. How should tech companies strike the balance between giving parents the tools needed to protect their children while like not possibly putting closeted kids in conservative environments in danger? I'll jump in here. It's This is a really tricky balance as you can imagine and as you alluded to, but and, and as I had stated earlier, not every home in the United States or across the world is open and accepting of their LGBTQ child. And so it's really important to make sure that as social media companies or just even those interactions online, it may not be social media companies, it may be it, it may be a social platform that is specific to the LGBTQ community or a helpline for the LGBTQ community. It's really important that information can be can be provided to a younger individual, a youth who otherwise has no other outlet because that may be their only outlet. That may be their only opportunity to interact or begin to explore. Keeping in mind, I know for me personally, I didn't come out to my friends and family around me at first. I The first thing I did was I started getting on AOL. This was back when dial-up was happening and you had to listen to it screech and scream while it got online. And this is where pictures loaded line by line. I was looking up what gay meant because somebody had said it to me. 
and and not necessarily referencing me, but referencing someone that I was attracted to and who was a bit more effeminate and I think was out at that time. And I was like, well, is that me? And and I'm not going to have that conversation with anybody around me. And I can tell you this story is still happening today. It happens in, in different ways and everyone has a different coming out story. And I wish that it wasn't that way, but a lot of times their identity and their, the beginning of their formation to even get to the point of having a conversation with somebody that they think is supportive, that person has already gone through a mountain of, of thought process or research or looking into it. And a lot of times that involves accessing online. And so the, it's extremely important that, that social media companies and these platforms provide and create spaces that are safe for our children, that are they're able to ask questions and find out information on their own, especially if they're not in a supportive home. I think this is, I can't underscore enough, this is why LGBT Tech formed our Power On program. To date, we've just, we distribute to over 80 LGBT uh, organizations across the country. We've distributed over $250,000 worth of technology to both the centers and the individuals that are partaking in those centers. And it really runs the gamut from organizations that serve all um, black and Hispanic and Asian trans individuals to, you know, some of the large organizations in New York or a very small organization in Iowa. And it's been so empowering to watch these individuals be able to find their space, find their community and use the technology that we've provided to, to create these environments for them where they have community, where they feel welcome, they feel safe, and they can ask questions of people who are older than them or people that are trying to help them or get them into resources. And so I just can't underscore enough that social media companies really need to be striking a balance. It's not always about the parent and, and keeping in mind that in some states, some of these youth can actually have conversations with, with social workers and teachers and administrators and there are laws in place to protect those youth where they don't that those administrators and teachers and therapists are not allowed to reveal to their parents that that the person is talking to them about lgbt so it's also being very mindful of what protections are in place for the lgbtq person but the companies need to do even more in ensuring that if this if the environment is not safe for lgbtq at home that they are providing a safe way for them to engage online and find that community because that at the end of the day is going to create community that doesn't feel like they don't belong and that they don't feel like they don't they can't be in this world and take a more drastic measure like suicide because they think that that's the only option out and i think at underscoring all of that we need to make sure that we're reaching all of our communities, all aspects of the LGBTQ community to make sure that we stop the su- the rates of suicide because they feel like they can't belong and they can't find community. Yeah, the uh, educator and uh, researcher in me got really excited listening to Chris cover a lot of ground. Uh, and I want to highlight three things. One is a child's first and most important educator are their parents. And I hope if nothing else, parents biological chosen and otherwise leverage the resources that exist include via the internet to have honest, sincere, and compassionate conversations with young people about the diversity that has always existed in the world. And a part of what I hope um, folks heard from what Chris's intervention around being honest in terms of the responsibility that tech companies have um, is also us being honest about the fact that children, young people more uh, specifically are often more adept at overcoming and or finding routes around parental controls than sometimes parents like to think. And so rather than uh, suppressing or attempting to shield young people from information that they 
um, will otherwise find ways to access, I think we should be taking advantage of opportunities to have honest and what might be uncomfortable conversations as honest as often as possible. The second thing is I recently completed my dissertation. I'm a sociologist. I study how white supremacy, anti-Blackness, LGBTQIA plus bias and the like work in public schools throughout this country. And one of the significant findings was the power of the internet, um, not only for connecting young people to each other, and as Chris describes, to terms uh, that allow them to make sense of uh, who they are in this world that um, they didn't ask to be born into, but also for parents such that they can find access to networks of other parents and experts who can help them um, to make sense of mourning the loss of the life that they have dreamt for their child and finding the space and resources to support their child and thriving um, in the way in which they are designed to thrive. And then Chris's last point around mental health is not lost on me, uh, not only as we talk about and center LGBTQIA plus students, but as we also think about and appreciate the reality that so many children, the vast majority of students attending public schools throughout this country are members of multiple marginalized, minoritized communities. And so in addition to the fact that there are LGBTQIA plus young people who are Black and otherwise members of other racial and ethnic minority communities, Black students generally as a group have also been committing suicide, both engaging in suicidal ideation um, attempts and completion of suicide. Black students uniquely are committing suicide now at twice the rate of their uh, white peers, um, which is alarming, again, considering the fact that children don't ask to be born. But for me, especially alarming, considering that the suicide rates for every other community of children are decreasing. And so to the point of balance, which is the the, the word for me that I, I hope threads everything um, together, we have to appreciate that Digital platforms can also be spaces that compel young people and not so young people to engage in negative thoughts and sometimes self-harm. But when supported, they can also be spaces that are empowering and affirming uh, to young people who might not physically have access to um, safe and supportive environments. Yes, definitely, definitely. So moving on from the topic of privacy, over the years, we've also seen an increased use in facial recognition technology for purposes ranging from policing to verifying identities for social welfare to unlocking smartphones. So David, this question is for you. It is well documented that facial recognition technologies are both racist and inaccurate. Can you tell us more about that? Sadly, yes, there is lots of data in a number of areas, specifically the prison industrial complex and the medical industrial complex that demonstrate that technology is often used to exacerbate the challenges that racial, sexual, and other minoritized communities face um, and not address the problems that technology is otherwise expressly permitted to solve. And so in the case of Chicago specifically, there's data that shows that the, the police department used data collected over time to target harass and penalties to African-American members of that community, a race that outstripped every other community of folks in that regard. We know today um, happens to be National Caribbean, as we're having this conversation, rather National Caribbean HIV AIDS Awareness Day. And we know as an organization that Black people continue to be disproportionately impacted by HIV. So when thinking about the ways in which data is used in the medical industrial complex, it has not been used to solve uh, health disparities, but has been used to exacerbate them. One of the things that often comes to mind when talking about the ways in which data has been used inappropriately is that there's also been a missed opportunity to respond to the ridiculous rate at which Black, Native American, and Indigenous women go murdered and missing. So this is one area in which we know that 
Um, there are municipalities and systems that um, collect data using facial recognition processes, but that information has not been used to solve a problem that has existed for quite some time and continues to increase. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Chris, would you be able to kind of build on that and talk more about the harms facial recognition technologies pose to trans folks in particular and what legislation you consider necessary to regulate or ban the use of facial recognition technology in society? Absolutely. I'm, I, you know, I want to be mindful of the fact that, and as I talked about earlier, I think it's important for everyone to recognize when they're talking in spaces, I'm a white gay cisgender male. And so I understand that, but I, but my experience in talking with so many LGBTQ and specifically trans members of the community, especially non-binary, those that may present differently on the outside than what society deems, you know, they should, they should be presenting. Facial recognition plays a huge huge issue here in the fact of however it's being used. And so if, you know, someone has completely transitioned and they, they're no longer using the, their dead name and they are completely comfortable in, in their transition and presenting and, and expecting their workplace and their community to, to accept them as the way that they asked to be accepted and, and under the gender identities and sexual orientation markers that they've asked to be accepted, Facial recognition doesn't understand any of that, and it's even worse because facial recognition has, as as David alluded to, just the black community in general, any any individuals of color, it's not trained in that way. The, the technology has heavily been innovated by white men uh, or white individuals in particular, and so it's not being trained to recognize faces and and specific nuances that are really important to culture and community. And so I think that we have a, such a long way to go here and that any regulators and any companies that are producing facial recognition type technologies need to be very mindful of the fact of the data that they're collecting and what they may be inferring by it. We have worked really hard on the back end working with database companies, huge database companies to ensure that they're continuing to to test these, continuing to increase their diversity in, in how they're training the facial recognition. But more importantly, once they have that data, what are they doing with it? What are they what are they setting as uh, privacy? What are they setting as as what is a hundred percent rate? How are they calculating a lot of these things? And I think there's just a huge amount of work that we have to do here. And I would caution any company or any legislator that we have only scratched the surface of this, that we have a lot more to do, and that it needs to be a law that completely reflects the full complexity of all marginalized communities, but especially communities like the LGBTQ community and ensuring that we're regulating it very carefully. I know there's one piece here that I wanted to bring up because I know there's a bill floating around that just came out that includes sexual orientation. And it also, I was encouraged to see that it includes biometrics that are that include sensitive information and they're making sure to kind of wall some of those things off. I, I, I haven't had the, the time to really go fully through that bill, I think it's a step in the right direction. I don't think we're fully there yet. I think we have a lot to do. I will also say we're also releasing on June 22nd of this month, uh, we are releasing our sexual orientation and gender identity paper with the Future of Privacy Forum. It's one of the first papers I know of that's diving into this, but also is doing some of this level setting to talk about the history of privacy implications for the LGBTQ community and how our data has been used against us. And I think it's really important that before legislators and companies are creating technology or, or creating policies, that they fully and transparently understand how our community has been attacked and how this information has been used negatively against us, because I think it's really unfair for them to try to regulate 
a technology that could have really harmful uh, impacts on our community in a really detrimental way. And to Chris's point about the work before us and the acknowledgement of biometrics, I want to underscore that this goes beyond facial recognition. I want to lift up the work of our colleagues and friends at the National Center for Trans Equality who have focused in the past years, most recent years, on TSA because the technology that is used to scan our bodies at airports does not allow for fluidity in the ways in which people show up in the world and the expectations that are often enforced based on rigid um, understandings of gender um, and identity. And so there, there's a lot uh, more work to be done to ensure that technology is used in ways that allow all of us to be um, safer and more meaningful engaged members of um, our citizenry. That is such a good point, David. Thank you. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, David. That's a super important mention. So as part of the larger big tech reform conversation, and about kind of regulating the online space, there's also been a lot of talk about reforming Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides immunity to online platforms from civil liability based on third-party content. What that means is that tech companies cannot be held legally liable for the content they keep up or remove on their platforms. A lot of lawmakers have been calling for the removal of Section 230 to increase incentives for tech companies to conduct more stringent content moderation. Can both of you speak more to how Section 230 protections enabled LGBTQ spaces online in the past and how removing Section 230 could actually end up hurting Black and LGBTQ communities? Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump in on that one in part because NBJC remains actively engaged in conversations with big tech platforms around how even conversations around amendments to Section 230 impact our work. And so to directly answer the latter part of your question, what the liability limitation has afforded organizations like NBJC and people who leverage internet platforms to create and engage in community building efforts that you can't otherwise do safely in real time is engage in our work. I mentioned earlier that as we're having this conversation, today is a national HIV awareness day. Routinely, NBJC takes advantage of digital platforms like Meta and Instagram, which is owned by them, and TikTok and, and other spaces where people consume information to share messages that are designed to decrease stigma, to encourage people to get tested, to know their status, to request a kit so they can do it at home or to find a space where they can do it in their community safely and for free, to be connected to communities of care so we can address problems where there are solutions to otherwise seemingly intractable um, problems and recent consternation around and attempts to adjust Section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act has resulted in sometimes our work being delayed and at other times the work not happening. And so out of an abundance of caution, what some tech platforms have done is stop the ability for folks to use certain terms. And the challenge is that sometimes the goal is to prevent people from using hate speech to target or otherwise attack and terrorize members of minoritized communities. But when tech companies are casting wide nets, it often impacts in unattended ways those of us who are doing um, work that is designed to heal and otherwise strengthen um, communities. I think I, I absolutely have to agree with a lot of the things that David said, and, and I'll take it a little bit, a uh, little bit more technical in the fact of we stand behind Section 230 as an organization because of what it has afforded our community. And the way we typically talk about it is the Section 230 sword and the Section 230 shield. 
And so if, you know, as a website or intermediary is big, small, that sword and shield has allowed platforms online to moderated user content to for them to be able to have that moderated user content stay on a website or as david alluded to take it down because it's it goes against the community community's guidelines and it's actually harmful but it really allows that platform to make that decision and come up with the guides and standards as to the way they're going to operate which goes back to my a point just a few questions ago and the fact that it's really important that platforms are transparent about how they're making these decisions, because when they're transparent about making those decisions, then it becomes a lot easier to defend those decisions because it clearly crosses a bright line rule or they allow it to stay because it doesn't cross any of those bright line rules that they've set. This sword and shield has created an environment for the community all the way from, I mean, I'm almost 40. The way that I really started exploring my own sexuality was I was on AIM chat rooms, which I don't even know if, if if most people know what those are, but I was on AIM chat rooms talking with individuals and creating my own community to better understand myself. And it was it was the ability for Section 230 and, and the ability for AOL at the time to be able to host that content, which allowed and provided me the platform to be able to explore my sexuality in a safe comfortable way if from my home i wasn't going out and, and you know i was doing it in a way that was safe for me but something that gave me the ability to to do that at a younger age and be able to then communicate with those that loved and cared for me in a way that i feel was res- respectful and response responsible and allowed me to maintain the relationships that were important to me i think that's kind of you know a huge underscore for a lot of the pieces that that are a result of of section 230 and i think that you know weakening section 230 i think would have the following consequences i'll name four of them one is platforms could be held liable for nearly anything that appears online or on their content the work of social, social justice organizations like Dave like mine and activists would become even more challenging as he alluded to today we were able to provide a lot more information to individuals than we were you know before and they're able to gather that information three is when section 230 was was amended in an effort to fight sex trafficking legitimate resources for sex workers and sexual content were actually removed from the internet and so it, it created created a space where it was less safe for individuals in that way. And for Black, Latinx, and diverse LGBTQ, SGL communities will suffer disproportionately. Members of our community will be blocked from fully accessing information and communicating online. And we're already seeing some of this. We've seen laws where laws were in public schools and libraries, certain information is, is blocked, but and, and that's great for some information, and, and we completely agree that some information should not be accessible, maybe sexually explicit, something like that may, should not be accessible. But the Trevor Project or information about Black queer history or any of that type of information is not damaging to, to a youth. It allows a youth to be able to explore the, explore their own identity and explore the community in which they want to learn more about. That's not harmful or detrimental. That's an individual educating themselves and trying to be the best version of themselves. So I, I strongly stand behind Section 230, and I think amendments to it need to be carefully very carefully evaluated because at the end of the day, it is marginalized communities, all marginalized communities, and the LGBTQ community that will suffer the most. Yeah, Chris, and thank you for bringing up um, Sista and Foster. David, I know you briefly mentioned that you'd also kind of like to go more into the nitty gritty of what happened the last time section of Congress amended Section 230 with Sista and Foster. would love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I really appreciate Chris's intervention because it centers appropriately this conversation around safety with the capital S and highlights how, if not implemented thoughtfully, policy can be used not to address core problems, but to amplify opportunities for misinformation and disinformation, which should also be centered in this. And so in terms of background for folks who haven't been following this in the way in which some of us have, Foster refers to the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was signed into law by a president who I shall not name in 2018, and it carved out an exception in the liability shield for platforms um, like the ones that we've been mentioning, right? So the the protection provided uh, in the statute by Section 230. And what it specifically did was create an exception in that liability protection for websites or platforms that, quote, knowingly assist, support, or facilitate the violation of federal sex trafficking law. And there is a separate bill you reference, FOSTA. There's also another bill, CES to Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. People often refer to FOSTA, acknowledging that it re- also reflects and, and, and responds to what's including in SESTA. But SESTA was specifically designed to address sex trafficking and specifically sex trafficking of minors. And so if you follow the thread, which included years of conversations, testimony from folks like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and others, there was a a focus on a number of legislative leaders around how to reduce the rate at which digital platforms, large ones in particular, were being used to facilitate sex trafficking. For folks that care about the details, a lot of the conversation and efforts was focused on a platform called Backpage, which was a classified site that also included adults, legal, non-minors who were engaged in the selling of sex consensually. And so one of the things that we've seen in the years since the codification of FOSTA is uh, that it has not been successful in reducing the rate of Uh, sex trafficking of minors, but it has been successful at making it more challenging for individuals who engage in sex work, who are also members of sexual minority communities, racial minority communities. I'm talking about uh, people who don't have access to privilege because uh, of, of their whiteness and or their socioeconomic status. What we've seen is that those who engage in sex work in particular, Black and Latinx trans individuals have been impacted in negative ways the most. And so there have been increases at, in the rate at which there have been arrests and prosecution of members of our community who engage in sex work. There have been more reports of violence around individuals who are engaging in sex work, which I remind folks is the the oldest profession that exists in, in our country and in the world. And to the larger points, simply around the trauma that many members of our community experience simply as a result of their being, what we've seen is that it has made them more susceptible uh, to harm and to violence, while again, not addressing uh, root causes. And so my hope is that as not only tech companies who have, some of them have been invested in ads and shifts internally, which they are now communicating externally around their responsibility to ensure safety for all members of the community. But there also is a need to focus on misinformation and disinformation, which is also used across platforms to target and terrorize members of our uh, community in ways that haven't been addressed. Definitely. Yeah, those are incredibly important things that social media companies need to work on. So as we all know, The world of technology is also evolving by the day. We have our existing social media companies, but also there's a lot of conversation right now around the metaverse and virtual worlds. What challenges in equity and inclusion do you think LGBT communities will face in the new world of VR? 
at present, we're still grappling with the need to ensure that members of uh, minoritized communities are safe in Web 2.0. And so I I struggle with, and we're actively engaging in conversations around what this looks like in Web 3.0. One of the things that I've been attempting to wrap my head around since engaging in the parts of the metaverse that are being built is that at present, across most platforms, the work is in policing is not quite the right word, but ensuring um, safety and support around language and how language is used to inflict harm. And so this is my kindergarten teacher brain thinking, in fact, sticks and stones break bones and words also hurt. And, and so when you think about moving to Web 3.0, there's not only language considerations that have to be made in an international context, but other forms of communication, remembering that nonverbal communication is a, is the most significant form of communication. And so thinking about how hand gestures and, and, and body gestures circulation might also send signals to people um, that might impact their safety. Another thing that's very real um, for me, and, and this is also acknowledging how much of a Black Mirror fan I am, is thinking about physical safety of members of our community. Every year since I've been the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, it has been the deadliest year on rec for trans members of our community, in particular, Black and Latinx trans women are most impacted, to go back to the point I made previously about missing and murdered women. And of course, I want to be overly explicit in stating that the problem is general and endemic to a lack of, of regard for um, Black women. And it's acute when we also think about Black women who are trans, queer, are folks who are femme identified. And so the point I'm making here is that I remain concerned about ways to ensure the physical safety of members of our community in virtual environments where the same dynamics that enable white, cis, heterosexual, able-bodied, most often male-identified folks from leveraging their privilege to inflict harm upon other folks in the real world or on 2D platforms exists. I imagine um, that it might be exacerbated in, in the, the Web 3.0 space as well. I completely agree. I, I just can't underscore the points that David made more. It's starting with the fact that we have not been able to get it right completely in 2.0. We have a lot of work to do. And so how in the world are we going to get it right in 3.0? And I think this this lends to the point of we've been looking at this very carefully. And one of the ways that LGBT tech works is we're not, you know, we're not the social justice organizations that are, you know, that some of our, our fellow colleagues are like HRC or ACLU or GLAD or GLSEN. They're all very important organizations as well as local LGBTQ community centers. And so as we're looking at these issues, we're also building worlds in these spaces. We are in there experiencing them, doing research and continuing to further understand how LGBTQ individuals might benefit from this, but also might face challenges. And I think one, it, it would be remiss of me to kind of not go over a few of the challenges, but Above all of this, just the basic access level is that it's ex- it can be expensive to get into virtual reality, augmented reality in some way, shape, or form. And so the digital divide is something that we have to absolutely address as fast as possible. And we've most certainly taken some strides in providing some, some benefits for individuals to be able to get online with higher speeds and faster rates. But ultimately, if we don't also address the, the technical issues of being able to get on to virtual reality, we're going to leave out an entire, an, an entire section of people that are not going to be able to fully and equitably participate in this world. And that is absolutely crucial that we do. I think the other pieces here is just looking at some of the the challenges, you know, I think I think David really hit on some of these is 
how user privacy, how, what are we doing with that data? There's a lot more information being collected than just what we type onto a computer. You're looking at possibly fingerprints, like biometric data, face geometry, eye scans, you know, all of those things. We're collecting even more information. What's being done with it? How is it being regulated? What, you know, and, and how are we ensuring that LGBTQ individuals across the spectrum are protected? Virtual reality and harassment is another big one. I think there's a lot of platforms out there that are trying to figure out how to to mitigate this, how to provide protective environments within the world. I don't think we're completely there yet, but I'm definitely seeing some positive, some positive pieces there. Lack of inclusivity, as I just kind of mentioned, I think that really starts at the heart of some of the issues, some of just fundamental issues of gaining access, which is why we created our Power On program to distribute that technology. It's also why we created our PADS program to provide a platform for LGBTQ STEAM professionals to talk about how they got into it. And I'm not talking executives, I'm talking middle managers, entry-level individuals. I want to hear from the individuals who are the Black Somalian lesbian woman who's a neuroscientist. Like Those are the people that we want to hear from. Those are the people we want their experiences because they're the ones that are going to truly change the technology and change the environments for everybody. And keeping in mind that if we're changing it and making a positive experience for the woman I just outlined, that impacts society overall. That has a positive impact and inclusivity for society overall. So it's not a, we're not, it drives me crazy to think that anybody would think that by focusing on a minority community or looking at a minority community, how we're making sure they're inclusive takes away from anybody else. It doesn't. It makes society better. It makes the technology better. It makes it more inclusive. And guess what? Along the way, we all might learn something that, that could really benefit or change our, our perception and opinion. I think the other side of this really quickly is just the positive pieces one is if you're in a rural community or you're somewhere in the world where you can't be out, having access to virtual reality and being able to go into a space like that provides a space of community that is more than just a 2D or a written word. It is interactive. And so you can be near someone that may identify similar to you, that may have the same struggles that you went through. And all of a sudden, you're you're dropping those borders and you're dropping those challenges of feeling alone, which at the end of the day, will help bring our community together and help individuals feel like they're not the only ones and they're not alone and they have community and they can rely on people. Also, I think we have the ability to create digital safe spaces through VR. One of the other areas is we've just signed into a strategic partnership with InnerWorld, um, which is a, a world that is built completely HIPAA compliant, but they have a lot of things in there that are, are built around cognitive therapy. And so it's allowing conversations. We actually just held our first LGBTQ meetup uh, in there this past Monday. There'll be another one in two weeks, but there's a really awesome ability for individuals to have conversations. Even, you know, even this past week, I had the opportunity to speak with older, non-binary religious pastor who really wanted to have conversation about race in, in the LGBTQ community and wants to create an environment for that where other uh, other racial minorities can come together and talk about their experiences and everyone can participate, but that creates an environment for us to listen and learn from each other. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. It just has to be done right. To David's point, it's got to be done right. We've got to make sure that we're thinking about these things. And if you're designing this technology, you need to make sure that you're thinking about it and thinking about it and talking to community members from all different communities to make sure that you're taking into account to make sure they feel safe, welcome, included, and and a part of this community that we have an opportunity to build together as a as a society. If we were in church, Chris, I would pass the collection plate. That is really dope work. And I hope that people uh, find ways to learn more about the LGBT tech partnership and, and all of what you 
just so beautifully danced through. At the risk of being persnickety, I want to um, underscore uh, one of the points that you made, which in my words is that the divide is real and we should expect for it to be exacerbated without intentional disruption. And I'm talking specifically about the digital divide, the Oculus device produced by Meta to act the developing metaverse cost around $300, which is cost prohibitive for so many um, Americans thinking about our current economic constraints. It also requires one to have physical space uh, within which they can uh, operate um, the device. Everyone should be clear as we're having this conversation that LGBTQIA plus youth are disproportionately represented amongst individuals who are experiencing uh, housing insecurity. And one of the things that NBJC committed to early on at the beginning of the pandemic inspired by the novel coronavirus, not white supremacy, um, is that our youth, Black, LGBTQIA plus folks, so our families and others tend to be uh, disproportionately represented in the South in non-coastal communities, not in major metropolitan areas. And not only did our young people not have devices to use to be able to access information, they didn't have access to broadband. And if they did have access, it was limited with regard to quality and consistency. And so there's a whole lot of work to be done as we think about the ways in which more privileged communities are already taking advantage of of things like the blockchain, as well as the developing parts of the metaverse to ensure that we don't continue to not only repeat, but to exacerbate existing inequalities. Yeah, those are all really important points. Thank you so much, both of you, for these incredible insights. Before I wrap up today's podcast, I'd also like to recognize once again, as both of you have touched on, that so many of these forms of discrimination the LGBTQ community faces extends beyond the world of technology and is also just part of an everyday reality, like very real challenges that many people carry as they go to school, to work, play sports, socialize, and more. In this hostile political climate, in this hostile political climate that we live in today, what words of hope and advice do both of you have for folks of the LGBTQ community? I'll go first. What I hope that our folks, F-O-L-X, hear me say is that I love you. Um, I see you. I value you. Um, and need you to know that you are beautiful and wonderfully made just as you are. We come from a long line of uh, warriors and innovators who have lived on the front lines of fighting for democracy and equity and equality. And my hope is that we prioritize our well in all ways of our being as we continue to do that work. And that we also find, including but outside of Pride Month, which is typically reserved for moments of joy, we find routine and consistent ways to pour into ourselves, to experience and to dwell in joy and to dream. I'm going to pass the collection plate back down your way because I completely agree with, with everything that you said, including the last last piece and, and follow-up statement, David. I, I, I think it's so important to remember that, you know, one, yes, absolutely underscore love yourself unconditionally and know and, and, and work on yourself to find the community that best fits what you need. It may not be right in front of you, but I hope you can find it and, and use the tools of the internet if you have access or go to the library and talk to a librarian, but use the tools around you to help build the best world for you. I think the other piece is creating space for individuals to tell their stories is important or just to be heard. So if you have people around you in your community, being able to be there and listen to them is really powerful. But also, if you have a story about coming out or um, you may be past that point in your life and you're, you're, you're in a comfortable place where you feel comfortable talking about that, um, 
tell that story. That story is important. You, I had someone tell me at one point because I recognize where I come from. I recognize I'm a middle-class white gay man, cis gay man. And I just, for a long time, I didn't tell my story, you know, about being kicked out of my home when I came out as gay, because I felt like it just wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't as bad as I've heard other stories be, but at the same time, you never know who's listening to you. You never know who might be might be identifying with you and your story. And so it's important to tell that story and be vocal about it in a way that you feel comfortable because you never know whose life you may be impacting with that story. And that creates a community of love and acceptance and a space where someone may feel like they can be accepted. They may never tell you. You may never know. But you, as I like to say, plant continue to plant trees under which you will never sit because that is going to build a vibrant, beautiful community that we can all live in and that generations of LGBTQ, regardless of where they come from, background, racial disparities, asylum seekers, wherever they come from, that they can find a place within our community and, and, and feel like they can thrive and live and build uh, on, on the amazing, beautiful community that we are. Chris, can I say thank you for modeling how to do that? And I, I have a question, which is, can I offer a term for your consideration? Yes, please. So the term is inviting in. And I use it in part because I have a visceral read negative body response to the term coming out for two reasons. One is because not everybody has to come out. I'd be fine with the term if everybody has to do it, but I don't think I've ever encountered a cisgender heterosexual person who had to come out. And so in operation, it tends to be this moment where straight folks stand with their arms folded, waiting for us to tell them a traumatic story about when we realized that we were different. And so that's the primary reason. The secondary reason is, as you um, described, coming out is often shared popularly as an experience that is white, right? White folks get to have the conversation. They, if they don't live in one already, move to neighborhoods like Hollywood, California, or Chelsea, New York, or Boys Town, Chicago, Maybe sometimes people imagine that all Black queer people live in Atlanta or D.C., which is not true, and gentrification is real. But the point here is that, as I mentioned earlier, most Black LGBTQIA plus and same-gender-loving people live in the South, where we're still fighting de facto and de jure discrimination based on race and ethnicity. And so the idea of us, quote-unquote, com coming out is often inviting the kind of violence that leads to fatal repercussions. And so the term inviting in to me acknowledges all of that and suggests that in the way in which religion has been used to suggest that the sin of, quote, homosexuality is higher than all others. Each of us have something about our life experience that society tells us we should feel shame around. But if we do a better job of listening and sharing as you talked about, and otherwise increasing competence and demonstrating compassion, maybe we can each invite each other in and live out the beloved community that Congressman John Lewis often talked about. Absolutely. And, and this is exactly what I'm talking about is we have to have open conversation. We have to create environment to listen to each other. And so thank you for that. I'm going to, I'm going to take that back and implement that into my continued conversation. So thank you, David. This has been a, an honor. Uh, to have this conversation with you today. Thanks for considering it. And thanks, Brookins, for creating the space. Shout yes. out to Nicole. Yes. And Nicole and Thank Sam. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you both so, so much for your time, your words, your insights. I really, really appreciate it. So this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bites. 
Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I am Samantha Lai, Research Assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.